This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's my great pleasure and honor to be here to talk about my study on chimpanzee mind. I have been studying chimpanzees both in the wild and in the laboratory. Uh, today I would like to talk about my study on chimpanzee to know the evolutionary basis of human mind, including mind reading. Uh, first, let me go to Africa. Uh, this is the chimpanzees in Bossu, spelled B-O-S-S-O-U, in Guinea-Conakry, West Africa. Uh, Bossu chimpanzee is well known to use a pair of stones to crack open oil palm nuts. She is a left hander. <laughs> Not only the tool use, but also the social aspect of intelligence. A mother gives a hand to her 2.5 year old female infant when she impart. So, what is uniquely human? Uh, through my study in Africa, uh, one of the answers is imitation. Apes, in fact, do not ape, as we do. Uh, let me show you the example. There is a chimpanzee start to crack open nuts at the age of four or five years old. So this is a young female, 3.5 years old, tries to crack open nuts. She tries it in various ways. Hitting, kicking. <laughs> Try again. One nut. And the second nut. I don't know why. And hold it up and end it. <laughs> so the same subject in a different scene. Again, she's 3.5 years old, very close to the onset of nut cracking. <laughs> now she goes to see the adult. And in such a very close distance, this is the way of observation of young chimpanzees. And no active teaching, important point. Adults never teach. And the youngster try to 
club open by herself. So she carefully observes the scene, but she cannot uh, imitate very well. So this kind of education or learning, I named education by master apprenticeship, is characterized by three things. Mother, adults, show the model. That's all, no teaching. And the child, apprentice, has a strong intrinsic motivation to make a copy. And the third point, adults are highly tolerant uh, to the infants as well as they want to do something. Uh, let me go to the laboratory. My research partner is named I, spelled A-I, like I, pronounced Asian and meaning love in Japanese. It started in 1978. And the chimpanzees in kept in the outdoor compound like this, 15 meters high, and a lot of vegetation. And now, as you see, a huge six stories high uh, green huge cage and silver cage, now three habitats interconnected to allow the chimpanzee to do the fission-fusion group. I is one of the ape language study, and she gave the birth to her son named Ayumu, means walk in Japanese, in 2000. And uh, different from the previous studies, I chimpanzee raised her kid by herself. And thanks to the long-term relationship between the researcher and the mother chimpanzee, I can ask the mother to help me to test your kid. So it's a triadic relationship. So I'm focusing on cognitive development of chimpanzees reared by the biological mother. So through this kind of good relationship between the researchers and chimpanzees, I'm injecting to the full adult male, the father of Ayumu. Again, what is uniquely human, the question? And my answer is, of course, language. Language is uniquely human. So this video clip summarizes what's going on in the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. The Primate Research Institute is in Inuyama, a small city. So they live in an outdoor compound. And 
Here is Ai chimpanzee in the left and her son Ayumu in the right. And every morning at nine, they come to the、uh, learning booth to participate in the cognitive experiments. I in the left, Ayumu in the right, facing to the computer. I touches kanji character to represent the number,、uh, the color. Blue goes to this letter. And the reverse. So gray. And yellow. Sorry, very easy for Japanese. <laughs> And Ayumu's son is learning to touch the Arabic numerals from small number to large number, 1 through 19. And based on this knowledge of the order of numerals,、uh, we invented a memory test. After touch one, the other numerals are gone. After touch one, the other numerals are masked, but still he can touch two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine.、Yeah? One, two, three, four, five, six. Please try. One, two, three, four. Don't worry, no one can do it. And the task is a little bit difficult. One and four are missing. Still, he can touch small number to large number in a very brief、uh, presentation. I cannot explain. My students of Kyoto University, the accuracy is 0%. But the task is so demanding, very close to the threshold for this chimpanzee, too. So he needs a concentration. <laughs> Completely lost. <laughs> Ten seconds later. He can do it. So the memory continues at least for 10 seconds. After the test, I get into the booth to play with the chimpanzees, to clean up the hands and foot. In return, she glues me back. <laughs> and then the two chimpanzees get back to the outdoor compound. So, this is what is going on in the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. What we learn is chimpanzees are so like us, but they have very special, unique capability of memorizing numerals at a glance. And of course, they can walk bipedally on the tight rope.
So I said, yes, language is, is uniquely human. But what is, what is a language? Uh, many people think it's, well, abstract concept or symbolic representation. But my answer is no. The essential part of language is portability. You can bring your experience with you and share the experience with your friends and family. That is the essential role of the language. Language provides us communication and collaboration. That is essential for rearing children. So let's look at the evolution of humans. The hominoid consists of humans, chimpanzees, gorillas, and orangutans. By the way, chimpanzee has two species, chimpanzees and bonobos. So this is a hylogeny. So let's look at our evolutionary neighbors, orangutan, living in Borneo and Sumatra. Very cute baby, by the way. <laughs> and gorillas. Mountain gorillas in Rwanda. Very cute baby again. Orangutan. Gorilla. Orangutan. Gorilla. Chimpanzees. Bonobos. So all evolutionary neighbors has a strong relationship between mother and infants. So infants always have their mother. That is common to all hominoids. But how about father? If you follow orangutan in Borneo, for a week, you will see only mother and infant. No males, no father. Orangutan is highly solitary. So there happened to be the male nearby the mother and infant, but he is not the father. So there is no social role of father in orangutans. Let's go to see gorillas. There is a father. That is called silverback male, big male. Big male and mother infant, mother infant, mother infant. But from the viewpoint of the infant, there is a mother, always mother, and the father. Look at chimpanzees. Chimpanzees, patrilineal lineage means all males remain in the natal community. All females reach to the puberty going out. And uh, new young ladies come into the community. So that is chimpanzee way of life, social life. This means chimpanzee have multiple males in the community. So again, take the viewpoint of the baby. Always there is a mother. And there are multiple fathers. I don't know which is my father. This could be my father, could be my grandfather, 
could be my uh, uncle, could be my big brother. But they make the collaborative effort to guard the mother and infant pairs. Let's look at bonobos. I went to Congo Zaire to see wild bonobos. Aggregation. And the sound is unique. Very different from chimpanzees. Chimpanzees sounds like Chimpanzees and bonobos similar in social society, uh, social organization. So in sum, if you look at the social life, you can see a very clear difference among our evolutionary neighbors, first orangutan, only mother. From the viewpoint of the baby, only mother, that's all. That is a society. But in the case of gorilla, mother, of course, but and father. In the case of chimpanzee, of course, mother and fathers, multiple father, including father, grandfather, uncle, big brothers, and so on. In the case of humans, mothers, not only your mother, but also grandmother or aunt, big sister, helps to raise the child and fathers to some extent. <laughs> so that is in some uh, human way of rearing collaborative uh, efforts to raise the children. That makes us human. That facilitated altruistic behavior and mind reading. A lot of collaborators in the laboratory and in the wild. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, so, as we have already heard, um, human social cognition is um, unique. Um, so humans are outstanding in their social cognitive abilities. So what do we mean by social cognition? It's how we understand each other, okay? So how we understand each other's minds, how we understand each other's behaviors, just how we understand each other. And this is because humans can make, in some situations, can make inferences about others' mental states, which, as we already heard, is referred to as uh, we have a theory of mind. So theory of mind these days is used a little bit as a summarizing term for all kinds of things. So like we understand things about others' visual perception, we understand things about others' knowledge, desires, beliefs, etc. So we can make um, predictions about what others can and cannot see, what others do know and do not know, etc. And we do this all the time. So this is part of our social interaction, and we sometimes can't even help it. This is really part of our social interactions all the time. 
So one way to sort of study how this evolved um, and uh, look at it from, from, from an evolutionary perspective is to follow a comparative approach and to compare humans uh, with other species. And one very popular comparison is that of humans um, with their social, with their closest living relatives, um, the great apes um, and the other apes. So the idea is that continuities across species are used to understand the evolutionary past. And if a trait exists in all species of a close phylogenetic family, then this trait is likely to have been present in the common ancestor of these species. Okay? So this is why we all have it, because our common ancestor already had it. So this is one way to look at it. So look at our closest living relatives, look at other primates. However, we can also learn a lot from looking at more distantly related species um, because the idea is that if a certain trait exists in very distantly related species, we can gain valuable insights into selection pressures at work during the evolution of these traits. Okay, so if we share um, some traits with distantly related species, then probably something um, um, is similar in the habitat that we sort of both um, adapted to. And so the domestic dog in this comparison is a very interesting species to look at because dogs have been living with us for more than 15,000 years. And one hypothesis is that maybe they evolved some social skills which are sort of similar to ours. Um, so one thing that people have looked at in their attempt to understand what um, other species understand about others is um, to look at what they understand about seeing in others. Okay, so... Um, so do chimpanzees know what others can or cannot see? This is a question that sort of people have asked. Um, and um, so they used the natural uh, situation for chimpanzees, which is competition over food. Okay, so when chimpanzees get together, um, they are not very nice with food. They don't tend to share. They tend to be competitive. And so what you have here is a situation where a subordinate, so a low-ranking chimpanzee, competes with a dominant chimpanzee, so a high-ranking chimpanzee, and they compete over food. And what, what normally happens when these two um, compete is the subordinate chimpanzee has no real chance to get the food. Okay, So the dominant will take all the time he needs to get the food. The sub subordinate normally wouldn't even leave his room, so would stay there. But the question was, um, what happens if the subordinate actually has an advantage and in this case, the advantage is, is that sort of he can see a piece of food that the other one can't see because there's a little barrier. Okay? So there are two pieces of food. Both are visible to the subordinate, but the dominant individual can only see one piece of food. And the question is, does that change the subordinate's chances? So here's a little video of the situation. So what you'll see is the subordinate chimpanzee, so the low-ranking chimpanzee, is coming from here. Here you see two areas. There's food behind this um, bucket, and there's food on top of this one. So the subordinate, from his perspective, can see both pieces of food, but the dominant coming from here can only see this piece of food. Okay? So now we'll see what happens. So the subordinate gets a little head start, so she can make a decision while the dominant is not yet around. Okay? No problem there. Okay, so in this situation... 
They're not stupid. So in this situation, chimpanzees clearly understand what the others can or cannot see. Okay, so this is just one condition. There were many control conditions ruling out alternative explanations, but the one that the subordinate in this situation really understands, okay, she can't see that one, so that one's safe. I can go for that one. So the question is, so now keeping in my framework of working with apes and dogs, um, more distantly related species, so what about dogs? Do they understand anything about seeing in others? Do they understand anything about others' attention? Well, the natural social partner for the dog is actually the human, and um, the dog um, owners uh, among you will know that dogs sometimes steal food when they get the chance. Um, So this is actually an an experiment designed on this observation. So dogs steal food sometimes when we are not looking. So the question is, can we really replicate that in the lab? And so what we did is confront the dog with a situation where there's a piece of food um, on the floor and the dog is told not to take it. So clearly a command not to take the food so you can see from the dog's behavior (laughs) that he got the message, okay? So then what happens is the human sits in the corner and then sort of um, sits there and it depends on the condition what she then does. So sometimes she's very attentive, okay, so the eyes are open and she's really looking um, at the food. Sometimes she's distracted playing a little computer game, which was actually my favorite condition. Um, Then sometimes the back is turned and sometimes the eyes are closed. We also tried a condition where the experimenter left the room. And I can tell you that from the dogs we tested, only one didn't steal the food once. But then for the others, they stole it within seconds. Okay, so we looked at how often do they steal the food. Okay, so how often do they take it? So we observed the dog's behavior for two minutes. Nothing happens when they steal the food, so this is not about learning anything. It's simply the question, do they differentiate between these different attentional states? And the answer is clearly yes. So they steal significantly less food when the human is attentive and looking at them compared to all the other three conditions, okay? But it's not that they never steal the food when I'm looking. So this is actually a trial when I'm looking, even though the other camera has my hat and you can't really see it, but I'm looking, I'm attentive. And this is one minute um, in the trial. Um, Mora suddenly decides to do this. Okay, thinking. But then, then when she eats it, she goes like, dum, 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 dum. so it's not really that she's really like, oh. okay, so we saw this sometimes, but so in general, when the eyes are open, when, when we are attentive, um, they don't steal the food, or they steal it significantly less. So, but I have to say that um, some understanding of others' attention, some under- understanding of others' current visual access to things seems to be widespread in the animal kingdom. Okay, so we see that in different species now, and there seems to be an urgent evolutionary function for social living um, animals to sort of evolve or have evolved some of these skills, so understand some of um, others' attentional states, some of others' visual perception. However, if you change the situation just a little bit, So now what you're doing or what you're doing is sort of using communicative cues to direct another individual's attention to some outside entity, which is something that we humans also do all the time. 
Okay, so we understand others' attention, but we also direct others' attention to things in the environment. And we do that by communicative cues. One cue that we use very often from early on is pointing. Okay, so we point to things. Children do that long before they talk, long before they um, use language. They start pointing and directing others' attention to things in the environment. Okay, so here's a situation where sort of the human is sitting with a chimpanzee and they had two cups in uh, between them, and the two cups are identical, and there's a piece of food in one of the cups. And now the chimpanzee gets a social cue, a communicative cue, to direct the chimpanzee's attention to the cup with the food, okay? So to help him find the food. And there's gaze alternation, even though, again, you can't see that, and there's a pointing cue, and this is what the chimpanzee does. So she really wants the grape. She gets a social cue to get it, but she ignores the social cue. And she's upset. (laughs) Because she doesn't get the food. Okay, so it's not about motivation. She really wants that grape. But the social cue in this situation doesn't mean anything to her. She's not using it. Interestingly, um, dogs in a similar situation, this is exactly the same setting. So you have a social cue, Um, The dog doesn't know where the food is and has no problems using this social cue, okay? So here we have something that suddenly domestic dogs do that our closest relatives don't even do. And here, if you want to see the data, so here's the data. This is important. We compared this to a control condition where there was no social cue, but still food was hidden. So it's not that the dogs just smelled the food. Okay, I know that many of you will think that. Um, but we have this control condition where there's food hidden, just like before, and there's no social cue, and then the dog can't find the food. Okay, so when there's no social cue, they can't find it, so it's not that they can smell it. So this is the data in comparison with the apes that we worked with. The dogs really um, did very well, whereas the apes didn't do so well. So I'm interested in both sides of this story, but let's talk about the dogs um, a little bit more today. So this is not just chimpanzees. So we look at other primates. The story is not that simple. I'm oversimplifying here. So there is... um, but if you look at primates in general, then they seem to have problems with this. Okay? So these social communicative cues in these situations um, do not mean that much to them, or they can't use them, whereas adult domestic dogs have no problem. And even if it gets a little bit more complicated, like you walk towards the incorrect cup, and from there you point to the correct one, the dogs can still do it. Okay? So it's not just about movement, it's clearly about communication. So from an evolutionary perspective, the question is, so what about dogs' closest living relative? Could it be that this is a canine thing, okay? So what researchers did, and this is especially in the study by Mikloshi um, et al., what they did is they hand-raised dogs and wolves. So they took them from their mothers, hand-raised the puppies in the human environment, in their houses, Um, And this was a study done in Budapest, so quite a big city. And they took the wolves everywhere. So they always pretended they're German shepherds. Um, And they took them to the cinema, to the restaurant, um, you name it. They tried everything they could to really treat them exactly like the dogs. And then they tested them at a certain age, and the dogs 
did everything like an adult dog does, whereas the wolves didn't. Okay, so it's not that wolves can't learn this. They can if they get special training, then they can't, can get there, um, but it's still then not as flexible as what the dogs do. Okay, so this is even more interesting now. But you could still say, okay, but it's just about learning. So it's just about, so dogs just learn faster um, and they learn better or whatever. So one thing we need to do is look at puppies, which is the research I like the most. <laughs> so um, what we did is we looked at um, six-week-old puppies. Um, for you who do not know dogs, this is when they are still normally still with their mother. So we made sure that they are still with their mother. So they're not yet in their family, they're not yet exposed to dog training, um, and also um, of so those of you who do not have dogs might not know that they sort of open their eyes roughly when they're three, four weeks old, and this is also when they start moving a bit, so six weeks is basically as early as you can work with them. And so we expose the puppies to the same social cues, so it's the same kind of idea, but you will see one difference. I'm going to show you the video in a minute. You'll see one difference. We wanted to make sure that the puppies cannot just be successful by walking towards the hand. Okay? So you could say that all the puppies need to do is go where the hand is, because they learned the human hand is kind of important, kind of interesting, and they just walk where the hand is, and then they find the food. And we want to make sure that they can't do this. This, this will not solve the problem. And so in this setting, we place the cups next to the puppy. So what the puppy actually has to do to be successful is move away from the hand. So he sees a piece of food. Then the experimenter is going to touch both cups, and in the end, the puppy doesn't know where the food is. And then gets the social cue. And we compared the exact same um, thing to adult dogs, and the puppies do as well as the adult dogs. Okay, so there was no difference between the groups. And so here now we have our evolutionary picture complete. So it looks as if really um, domestication changed dogs so that they can do this, um, something that even our closest living relatives cannot do. And so the hypothesis at the moment is that dogs have evolved social cognitive skills which are functionally equivalent to those of humans. They're not the same, of course, but they're functionally equivalent. Or as Paul Bloom put it, for psychologists, dogs may be the new chimpanzees. <laughs> Thank you. So... What we're looking at now is we're looking through a two-way mirror. This is a, a mirror to the dolphin, and it's a window to us, and it actually functions as a window into the minds of dolphins. This is the National Aquarium, and this is a two-year-old dolphin named Bailey. So the question has been for me, do dolphins and other species like dolphins and elephants understand this sense of self? Do they have a concept of what we call mere self-recognition? And does she understand this is an external representation of herself? And is she motivated to use a mirror as a tool to view herself, parts of herself, activities that she can't see in the absence of a mirror. And we know that we are a mirror-using species. We have this capacity for this particular aspect of self-awareness. And, and poor Narcissus here was too obsessed 
with looking at himself. Um, I've used a mirror as a tool to study a particular aspect of self-awareness in non-human animals. And animals and children's reactions to mirrors have been very well documented as a reliable behavioral index for this aspect of developing self-awareness. But I want to be clear that self-awareness as theory of mind is not a unitary thing. And I think sometimes people think that when we say mere self-recognition as a measure of self-awareness, we mean that's all, you know, that's the only way to measure self-awareness. And it certainly isn't. It's a very specific visual task that lets us ask information about how humans and other species interpret the information they see in a mirror. And are there similarities? Are there any kinds of uh, convergences or continuities? And that's what I'd like to talk to you about today. But again, mirror self-recognition in my mind is one index of self-awareness, which is a much wider category. And in, in babies, MSR develops, mirror self-recognition develops at approximately 18 to 24 months of age. And we heard that um, other cognitive aspects of theory of mind are also developing this age. And because mirror self-recognition seems to emerge about the same time as empathy, you know, around the same time, and other aspects of theory of mind. It's been suggested by Gordon Gallup and others uh, that there may be an ontogenetic link between these these uh, abilities, and also it, there may be a phylogenetic link within the emergence of empathy, theory of mind, and uh, MSR and other aspects of theory of mind. And I want to talk about some of those things briefly today. But first, I want to just get us on the same page and talk a little bit about what you need to do cognitively to show mirror self-recognition. So first, you have to pay attention, selective attention to the mirror, as opposed to looking at other things. Do all species pay attention to a mirror? No. And many species will pay lots of attention to a mirror, but they interpret it as another, a conspecific, one of their own kind, and show social behavior. For those species that do pay attention, how do they interpret that information? Again, there's potential information in that mirror. And that's a key. How do they interpret that information? Do they have the cognitive capacity to understand that that one-to-one relationship has something to do with their own behavior? Do they have the proprioceptive knowledge to be able to understand what they're seeing in front of them is related to what they know about themselves and their movements in space? And finally, it seems to require not only this mental capacity, but the motivation to use the mirror as a tool to view yourself, or we wouldn't have behavioral evidence to say anything about the minds of very young children and and non-human animals when they're not speaking yet. Again, particularly in the case of of animals, because we only have their behavior to look at. So again, we can recognize our faces in the mirror at, and at a relatively young age. But what about other faces? What about our closest relatives? And um, they, when we look at videos of them sh- looking at a mirror, it's easy to uh, relate to the movements we see because they're so similar to us morphologically. Their brains are organized in similar ways. But what about non-human faces that are quite different? Animals that have been separated from us for millions of years and have quite different morphologies in brain structure and in body form. Dolphins, elephants, and these are the animals that I've been so intrigued with studying uh, over the past years. What about these non-human faces in the mirror? Well, 
mere self-recognition has been relatively uh, confined, has been uh, relatively confined to humans and the great apes until fairly recently. So I'm using uh, Franz Duval, who's a primatologist, as my token human here. So we know humans show it. The, uh, is there a similarity? So we have humans, we have, uh, sorry, Franz. We have the common chimpanzee showing it. We have the bonobos showing it. Bonobo chimpanzees, the orangutans, and the gorillas. And these are all members of the great apes species. Now, interestingly, there's been a real dichotomy in those uh, species, those non-human primates and human primates that show it and don't. And the line's been drawn between the ape species and the monkey species. Uh, the great apes, who, by the way, also show evidence for empathy, and monkeys don't seem to show evidence for empathy. That's where the divide seems to be. There was one study that happened recently, I won't have time to go into details, suggesting or showing that rhesus macaques, rhesus monkeys, may also have this ability un under unusual circumstances, which was a very interesting finding. <laughs> now, yeah, I love this cartoon because it makes you it makes you realize it's often very difficult to discern whether another's animal understands is it looking at itself or is it looking at another. And let's talk about how we ask these questions. So first of all, Gordon Gallup, uh, in his uh, groundbreaking science paper in 1970, was the first to show mere self-recognition in chimpanzees. That was the first non-human species uh, to demonstrate this ability. So there are about three stages you see in, in route to showing mere self-recognition. The animals are exposed to a mirror, and this is true for human animals as well. Initially, if they're mere naive, they show exploratory behavior, trying to look behind, over you know, the mirror, trying to figure out what this thing is, if there's somebody there or not. And often you see social behavior with animals that are naive, acting like they're looking at another of their own kind. This is followed by a second stage, which we call contingency testing. And I'm going to let Groucho demonstrate what this looks like. So this is where you see a lot of contingency testing behavior, repetitive movements, testing this one-to-one -one contingency. And this seems to be where the light bulb goes on for those animals who go on to show mirror self-recognition. Again, you have to have some sense of proprioception of your own movements. And then you and these animals have to figure out that, indeed, there is this one-to-one -one relationship. And then you start seeing a progression to more <laughs> self-directed behaviors. Yeah, I've seen this with dolphins, very similar kinds of behaviors with dolphins and elephants. The light bulb goes on. Once you see this critical stage, uh, you see a change to more self-directed behaviors. And these are defined basically by, again, these are all behaviors in front of the mirror where they're self-touching in front of the mirror. Often you'll see looking in one's eye, very close eye viewing, opening your mouth and looking at the inside of your mouth. Um, children, chimps, and some of the dolphins that we've observed uh, have looked at their genitals in a mirror. It's extremely interesting. Very similar behavior patterns. Now, this has been considered evidence in itself, self-directed behavior, for mirror self-recognition. And when Gordon Gallup did his original work, he developed another test called the Mark test, which he considered to be even a stronger, more objective test to assess mirror self-recognition, where you uh, put a mark on an animal's body. In the case of the chimps, it was put above their brow ridge. And initially, they did it with slightly an lightly anesthetized animals, and then it was done with animals not under anesthesia. But there's a mark placed on the body. 
when the animal comes back to the mirror, if it touches the mark on its body, more so than before it's been marked, because if an animal's always touching its head and just continues to, you can't really say anything. But if they touch their head and it was, there was a low probability of them doing that beforehand, then that was evidence of passing the mark test and showing mere self-recognition. So these are some of the behaviors um, that have been seen. Close body viewing, self-grooming, looking in one's mouth, sticking out a tongue, nose picking, um, you know, again, self-inspection of different parts of the body. And I'm going to show you a short video clip. This is from a nature uh, show called Monkey in the Mirror. This is a chimpanzee showing that Groucho contingency testing, moving to more tentative, self-directed behavior. And now we have a beautiful case of using the mirror to examine what looks to be some dental work needed. Here's the mark test. And again, the animal comes in front of the mirror and touches the mark. So Gordon Gallup, uh, after his seminal work, had suggested that perhaps dolphins and elephants would be excellent candidates for studies like this for a number of reasons. They have large and complex brains like we do, like the great apes do. They show empathy. And these are two species that have shown empathy towards animals of their own kind as well as other animals, uh, other species. And there's a long history of of, uh, observations of elephants and dolphins showing what we would call empathic behavior or altruistic behavior. So they made good candidates. And I had been studying dolphins for about 25 years, and we had seen them do cognitive uh, abilities that were quite comparable to the great apes. So we went ahead and did a series of studies. Again, here's just a list. I won't go through all the, the attributes. But again, they do have large and complex brains. And as I said, they show both behavioral and social complexity and evidence uh, for altruistic or empathic behavior. And if there indeed is a link with the emergence of empathy, theory of mind, and MSR, again, these may all be related, they made a very interesting study uh, subject. So here's a dolphin brain and a human brain. The dolphin brains are uh, are way more than, than a human brain, but Dolphins are larger animals than humans. And we can also think about uh, what's called an encephalization quotient. This was first suggested by Jerison, and this is a, a, a slide by uh, Laurie Marino, who plotted the ratio. This is a ratio, brain-body ratio, of what the size of a brain is relative to the body size. It's the expected brain uh, weight to run a body of a particular size. So human EQ is seven, means the brain is seven times larger than would be predicted to operate that body. And the great apes range from uh, 1.8 to 2.3, uh, to, uh, and then to 1.6 for gorillas. Dolphins, 4.2. So their brains, in terms of EQ, are larger than that of uh, the great apes, closer to humans. Again, we don't know how to measure relative intelligence in terms of brains. Is it the number of neurons? Is it the organization? Uh, Is it the overall size? These are all interesting questions, of course. So the other thing about the dolphin brain before I move into behavior is that while they're large and complex, there's no one area that's associated as the front, that's considered the frontal lobe. And it doesn't mean that they're not doing similar processes, but there isn't a particular area we can identify identify as frontal lobe. So that makes it uh, dolphins a very interesting animal to study. 
uh, in their own right. So we did a study with two dolphins at the New York Aquarium where I was research director, 13-year-old Presley and 17-year-old Tab. These were two captive-born dolphins. We saw the same progression of stages in their behavior that had been reported for chimpanzees and children. When we first exposed them to mirrors, they had already had reflective surfaces in their dolphin pool at the aquarium because they were glass walls. And when you get a differential light inside the tank and outside of the tank, it sets up sort of a mirror-like reflection. And we had seen things that looked like they might be looking at themselves in the mirror. But we put a real mirror in, and we got quite a radical difference in behavior. So they never showed the social stage. We didn't see social behavior, but they have made, they've had experience with reflective surfaces. We did see contingency testing and self-directed behavior very quickly. And once we saw that, we moved on to running the mark test, and we marked the animals with a non-toxic mark on different parts of their body that they could not see without a mirror. And we ran several mark tests with each dolphin. With the chimpanzees, often you'd run one test, and if they pass, that was sufficient. We needed to do more because we had what we call the no hands problem. They could not touch the mark. We could not get that nice response. So that instead, we tested would the dolphins, when marked, race to the mirror and orient that part of their body that was marked right away to the mirror. And we felt that that would be compelling evidence for us to interpret as mirror self-directed. So it wasn't just dilly-dallying and eventually getting to the mirror. We really had a requirement of them racing to the mirror, immediately orienting that part of their body to the mirror, and looking within the first 15 seconds. So that was a pretty strict criteria, but we didn't want to be fooled. So we had uh, tested them in two different pools. This is the second pool we tested them in, and what you're seeing is the dolphin is marked at one end. This is once they've shown self-directed behavior and we start marking them. The mirror is at the other end, and we predicted if they really understand that they can use the mirror as a tool to see themselves and they're motivated, they would race down to the other end, orient to that mirror, and and expose that part of their body to the mirror right away. And here's just a video. This is the dolphin, these were the dolphins in their first pool. They're taking toys over to a mirror. Where that dolphin is, is where a mirror is placed on the outside of the pool. It's where that white mark is. It's a very thin mirror. This is the close eye viewing we were talking about. I've slowed this down so you can see it a little bit more easily. We also saw, here's the Groucho stage, the contingency testing stage at the mirror. And it's very hard to discern whether this is self-directed or just contingency. And I, I continue to have problems with this. But in the beginning, we call it contingency until we see evidence for clear self-directed behaviors. Then we mark them. And again, the expectation is they're going to come back and the criteria is they're going to come back and orient. So this is Presley, the first dolphin we worked with. He races back to the mirror right away. He didn't circle the pool. He went right to the mirror after he was marked. And he is now orienting. He's marked on his head. And you see him, and this is, we have to do baseline behavior. We do all the controls where we have a non-reflective surface as well as a mirror and see what their normal behavior is. Now, this is Presley a little bit later. We pretended to mark him with a sham mark, a watermark. And we actually started doing this before we ever marked him just to see what he'd do as a control for the mark. When we just marked him before he was never marked, he never went to the mirror when he was shammed. I don't think he knew he was marked. Once he was marked and saw the mark, when we did what we called the late marks, once he had been marked, we started doing the shams. He is looking for a mark. This is a dolphin with something in mind. And he, we marked him underneath his pectoral fin, and he is crammed in the corner where the mirror is now, a different location. So now this is a, a bird's eye view of these pools I showed you before where we put the mirror in the... Uh, 
at one end. This dolphin now, Presley, is getting marked under his chin. This is a different location. First time, and you're going to see him. He's at the far end of the pool. He's going to race down to the mirror. The other dolphin in the foreground is not marked, and he doesn't do that. He did it when he was marked, however. So here is Presley already at the mirror, and if you notice, his behavior is quite different. He's now stretching his neck up, exposing that area of his body. This is a different behavior than we saw. And now it's 10.38. Just for time's sake, I cut this to a little bit later. It's now 10.43. He is still at the mirror. (laughs) Notice that the other dolphin is not. So if they thought there was another dolphin that was marked there, you would think that they would both be watching and they would both be maybe imitating that behavior, but that's not what you get. This is a dolphin that understands it's marked. It's using the mirror to self-view. Now, if you want to see your whole body in the mirror, what do you need to do? You need to back away from it. So Presley here understands the contingencies of mirror use. He's now backed away and you see him looking in the mirror and spinning. Looking and spinning. He, under, he has learned how to use a mirror to view himself. This is not a trained behavior. It does not exist in their repertoire. So I'm just going to finish quickly here um, and talk about a few last things about elephants, just with, with our time limit. Um, with, these are two species that have been separated by millions of years of, of separate evolution from very different environments, different body forms, showing this very same ability. And we felt that this was important, this was very nice evidence for cognitive convergence in these two species. My colleagues, uh, Gordon, uh, Franz Duval, and Josh Plotnick, and I did the same series of tests with Asian elephants. And again, this list, you could just overlay this list with what we, with the list I showed you with dolphins. We ran the same sets of tests. I just want to mention that the elephant brain uh, is about 4,700 grams. It's again much larger, but so are their bodies. And their EQ is that of similar to what we find in the great ape species. So uh, elephants also show evidence for empathy. And this is an elephant. This is a picture from Ian Douglas Hamilton. And he reports um, elephants helping other elephants when they're uh, injured or when they're sick. And this is, an, these are, this is an unrelated female repeatedly trying to lift up, an, uh, again, a non-related uh, adult, uh, elephant. That's an elephant, not a dolphin. So we exposed, uh, we exposed three elephants at the Bronx Zoo, Happy, Maxine, and Patty, to jumbo-sized mirrors. And we, in the case of elephants, because they could smell the mark, we had to go to extra precautions and sham mark them with an invisible mark made of the same substance as the visible mark to control for olfactory cues. They were exposed to mirrors. They were, showed great interest in the mirrors, very similar to dolphins. And by the way, the dolphins and the elephants were quite silent in front of mirrors. I think that's really important because you normally would not get that in a social situation. By the way, elephants also, once they started showing more self-directed behavior, seem to enjoy eating in front of the mirror. And that's been reported for chimpanzees as well. Um, so here's some of the contingency testing behavior. This is uh, the one elephant out of the three, Happy, was the only animal that passed the mark test. However, all three elephants showed both contingency testing and strong evidence for self-directed behavior. So here she is doing some repetitive movements. And again, you have to do baseline, because if these animals are normally moving like this, you can't call it contingency testing. So we saw nothing like this. And she did a lot of throwing uh, dirt over her head and doing this kind of uh, self, you know, uh, self-marking. Now, here's another example of the contingency testing. Here we see, again, this one elephant happy showing uh, something that looks like she's doing the two-step in front of the mirror. 
and she'll come back into the frame. We are actually looking through the mirror, I should say. We have a camera embedded in the mirror. And they show nothing like this in baseline. So we're seeing a lot of this little, again, it looks very much like what we saw with Groucho. So finally, we did the mark test, and again, this is Happy with a mark on one side of her head and the sham on the other. She never touched either side until she got to the mirror. And then once at the mirror, you'll see what's happening. Again, we're looking through the mirror. She touches close to the mark, and the only place she's, is she touching is that mark, and she's showing much more mark-directed behavior as well. You'll actually see a touch to the mark. She's within eight feet of the mirror, to four to eight feet of the mirror now. It's kind of a distorted image. And now she puts dirt on the mark. And we have cameras going from both sides. So finally, we have evidence that these three, these various species that are highly divergent all show the same uh, abilities. And recently, more recently, in 2008, there was evidence that showed magpies also showed the same progression of stages and very similar behaviors as well. So here we have sort of the MSR club to date. <laughs> What's really interesting, and I'll just summarize now, is that the species that show this ability all have large and complex brains. They all exhibit social and cognitive complexity. They exhibit empathy or altruistic behavior, although we don't know much about birds, magpies yet. They, and what's really striking to me is that they show the same progression in the stages moving towards expo- from exposure to mere self-recognition and strikingly similar specific behaviors. So it leaves us with a lot of big questions. Do some species show MSR? Why do some species show it and others don't? Are there neural correlates? And at what age does it develop? Well, this is a two-year-old dolphin. And um, we're, we're now doing studies on development. And I'm not going to be able to tell you at what age it develops. I'll say it's very young. And we'll leave that for another talk. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.